So Imam Tahawi Rahimahullah just emphasized the attributes he finally mentioned in summary that this is because he is omnipotent everything is dependent upon him and every affair is effortless for him he needs nothing and there is nothing like him yet he is the hearing the seeing now he takes some of these points and will clarify them even further Though actually the one point I'd like to mention about the sifat of taqween the attribute of taqween bringing into being which was of contention between the Ash'aris and Maturidis the Ash'aris they actually say that that's a created attribute because they say it's actually an association and associations are created I just wanted to clarify that the Maturidis they say they're not created but they're eternal and it's a proper attribute Imam Tahawi says لا يحتاج إلى شيء he's not in need of anything ليس كمثله شيء there is nothing like him وهو السميع البصير yet he is the hearing the seeing I already explained to you I went through that right in the beginning that was a very important point that's a very important verse as long as we can keep that in mind inshallah we can abstain from thinking the wrong thoughts about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala I see children when they're growing up they start they hear about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and shaitan puts into their mind they try to bring a picture up in their mind is very important so that we can try to dispel all of those thoughts from our mind you need to think of something like when you're making muraqaba when you're making dhikr or something like that when you're sitting down just thinking about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the things that we can think about to avoid having the mind go to places where it should not go is you can just think of the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala descending you can just think about other things and the might and the greatness and the generosity and benevolence just think that the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is descending upon our hearts as opposed to like picturing something. It's very important to avoid that. Number 19. He originated the creation with omniscience. He measured out the lots of all he created. So he originated the creation based on the knowledge that he had. So again, remember, the, his knowledge has encompassed everything from eternity. The question that arises is that how do these attributes act with one another? How, what's the relationship between them? And again, like there's knowledge, there's the will, there's the creation. We can't really say that this comes first, this comes second, this comes third. In a sense, we can say ilm, he's, he's always had, it's going to be before the created association of, of creation. Because the created association of creating comes later on, after the eternal one. But in terms of his ability from eternity to create something, the relationship of that with his will, which is also eternal, it's an attribute, and his ilm, which is also eternal, it's very difficult to say one comes before the other because we're not privy to these things. This is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is speaking about. But, like Maidani explains, he says that he created the creation with his ability, with his kudra, when his will became associated with it, which means that when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala willed the thing to come into existence, then it came into existence. Through his knowledge. Allah had knowledge of what he's creating before he created it. It's not something he does at random. He tries out. No. 
He's something he knows what he's doing, what's going to happen when he does it. He knows all of that. It's not a trial and error type of work that he does. But it's an absolute. He knows exactly what's going to happen and why he's doing it. And then he says, وَقَدَّرَ لَهُمْ أَقْدَارًا And likewise, he measured out the lots of all that he created, which means, is it going to be good? Is it going to be bad? How it's going to be taken? How long it's going to be? وَدَّرَبَ لَهُمْ آجَالًا Number 21. He determined the spans of their lives. This in a bit more detail, the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, which mentions the embryonic stage and says how it begins to form from the clot of blood to the clump of flesh. And then at about 120 days or so, the angel comes and gives a special designation. How long it's going to live? Is it going to be shaqiyun am sa'idun? Which means, is it going to end up with a wretched end or a good end, destined for paradise or hell? And so on and so forth. Of course, these things have been predetermined and known by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from eternity and they're in the book. But now, when this particular embryo is forming, then the, the soul which was created from before and is by the throne of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala becomes, the angel comes and attaches and you know, designates that this soul is for this embryo. And it writes all of these things. These things are all determined. This is not something that was de- that is determined later on. It's not that the angel determines this later on. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala didn't know about it before. All of this was in the knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala before. But this is just a specific action that takes place at that time for that particular embryo. From the general knowledge of everything, this is just then specified. Allah knows what each individual is going to be. But when that individual is forming... That's when that designation is just created with that individual just for our sake so that we can understand that the soul comes in at this time and for the spiritual benefit of the knowledge that there's certain determinations that have been made. Though those determinations have already been made from eternity by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, وَضَرَبَ لَهُمْ آجَالًا He determined the spans of their lives so that you know they can live for this much or this long and this is how much provisions they will get and receive. That means nobody actually eats the provision of anybody else because everybody's <coughs> provision is written for them. So when you, somebody comes to your house and eats something, that's actually written for them. And you should be really clear about that. We should not withhold. When somebody comes to our house, we should actually be open and just lay it all out. In fact, that's the one place where you can actually go all out. For ourselves, we can't. We have to be very careful. When it comes out for others in terms of generosity and hospitality, it's permissible to actually go and provide for them very good things. It's an encouragement in that sense. They're eating their own food, basically. It's just written to be in your house. And nobody dies anybody else's death. They die their own death. The Mu'tazila have a problem with this. They say that anything haram and unlawful cannot be considered rizq. Rizq has to be halal. And only the lawful substances are rizq. Other things don't qualify. So haram food, for example. Now that's a problem because there's some people who've only ate haram all their life. Either purchased with haram wealth or actually haram. Or some animals have always eaten haram. Does that mean that Allah hasn't provided for them? Allah said, He is the one who provides. Allah is the one who provides. So these were, again, just some of these intellectual exercises that would lead to some of these conclusions which were really useless in a sense. The ulama believe that even haram can be risk. It's just what a person is sustained by and Allah provides that. They also said that the maqtul, the one who's killed by someone else, his life is shortened. He doesn't die his own death. Somebody else has deprived him. Now, in the worldly sense, we're going to hold the murderer responsible. 
But on the other hand, when it comes to this person who's been killed in an accident or whatever, that person has died his death. That's what was written for him. Though, it's just this person was used for it. You know, the whole issue of suicide. There's certain things which is within our ability and there's certain things which is out of our ability. Life and death is not within our realm. Like, we didn't choose to come into this world or that we should look like this or like that. Not even our parents have much of a control over that. Likewise, death. But the question that arises is, we think that people do have a control over their death when they try to kill themselves. Most people who try to kill themselves either with a gun or throwing themselves over a bridge or whatever it is, they do die for the most part. Well, that's just because this world is a, an abode of means. And when you adopt the correct means, then they have a result. So if you're going to shoot yourself in the head, you're most likely going to die. But there's people who shoot themselves in the head and don't die. It just misses the, the critical point. People who throw themselves off and try to hang themselves, they just don't die. They overdose themselves and they don't die. Because death is in the hands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Everything is in the hands of Allah, but there's some things which He's given some amount of will to the human being to do. And some things are just out of the human will. So, a person who is killed by somebody else, although that other person is responsible, that person who's died has died his own death. And that's exactly what was written for him. Allah says, وَمَا مِن دَابَةٍ فِي الْأَرْضِ إِلَّا عَلَى اللَّهِ رِزْقُهَا there's no four-legged creature, I meaning there's no beast on the earth except that Allah is responsible for its risk, its provision. فَإِذَا جَاءَ أَجَلُهُمْ لَا يَسْتَأْخِرُونَ سَاعَةً وَلَا يَسْتَقْدِمُونَ That verse in the Qur'an in itself proves, you see, their belief goes against the verse of the Qur'an which says that when their time comes, إِنَّ أَجَلَ اللَّهِ إِذَا جَاءَ لَا يُؤَخَّرُ لَوْ كُنْتُمْ تَعْلَمُونَ That when the time that Allah has allotted comes, then it will not be delayed and postponed. If only you know. There was no way that it was going to be anything else. And killing is different from death. Killing is the action of the murderer. Death is the action of the one who's dying. So the person who's the murderer, he's responsible for killing and is accountable for that and will be punished for that. وَلَمْ يَخْفَ عَلَيْهِ شَيْءٌ قَبْلَ أَنْ يَخْلُقَهُمْ وَعَلِمَ مَا هُمْ عَامِلُونَ قَبْلَ أَنْ يَخْلُقَهُمْ Now if you look at all of these points from 19 and onwards, they're relating to some attribute of Allah. We've been through all of the attributes in detail. Now you can just link which attribute is talking about. So, All of that is part of his knowledge of irada, will, his knowledge, his qudra, his ability, his taqween, etc. etc. This one, None of their actions were concealed from him before he created them. That's his sifat of ilm. It's absolute. Even before he created them, nothing of their actions was unknown to them. He knew what they would do before he created them. What are we going to hide from him on the Day of Judgment? We're talking about after the fact. Whereas he knew before the fact. And Allah forgive us and Allah conceal us on that day. You know the hadith which talks about somebody who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will take and cover him and say, أَتَعْرِفُ بِذَنْبِ كَذَا وَكَذَا You know, do you... Confess to such and such a thing. The person said, yes. Well, this one, this one, this one. And the person just thinks he's dead. He's gone, he's finished. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgives him and said that just the way I concealed you, I conceal you now. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala conceal us on the day of judgment. Because he knew what they would do before he created them. The sifat of knowledge is the attribute by which knowable things become revealed. 
And for Allah that's everything. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is knowledgeable of everything that takes place. I mean just to give an example, rainy day, playing in your garden with little kids and you pick up a stone, you know this big nice flat stone and there's uh, all these small insects under there which you never knew existed. You know about 20 of them in this dark rainy day and they're walking. I mean you can't hear them, you can just about see them. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knew of those things and knows of those things simultaneously at one time. He can hear them, he can see them. Without having any tools or implements or eyes or any kind of auditory implements to be able to hear, he hears without all of these things. See, just to put into perspective, if I'm listening to one person reading to me or talking to me, I can concentrate. I've tried with two people and you can just about do it if you know what they're talking about, you know, because you miss some parts but you can kind of make up, uh, you can fill in the gaps because of other knowledge that you have. Like listening to two people reading Quran to you. Try three and it's, it's literally, I don't know anybody who can do three. And imagine four and five, just forget about it. The whole room is talking, how are you going to listen to everybody simultaneously and understand what they're saying? I mean, that's the thing about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. At any given one time, He knows and can hear and can see whatever anybody is saying at that same time throughout the world. In fact, at the same time, He knows what anybody will be saying and what they said. I mean, it's just way beyond what we can even imagine. You know, we can't even get to a fraction of that. Not even 1% of that. That's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And He's our Creator. And Allah be pleased with us. He knew what they would do before He created them. Now He talks about Allah's command. He says, وَأَمَرَهُمْ بِطَاعَتِهِ وَنَهَاهُمْ عَنْ مَعْصِيَتِهِ Number 23. He commanded them to obey Him and proscribed them from disobeying Him. Prohibited them from disobeying Him. Now after all of that, He created the human being and then He gives them some orders. Now when He commanded them to obey Him, He also, and this is His generosity and His benevolence, He also promised rewards. And He prohibited them or proscribed them from disobeying Him. And at the same time, He warned them of punishment. وَكُلُّ شَيْءٍ يَجْرِي بِتَقْدِيرِهِ وَمَشِيئَتِهِ وَمَشِيئَتُهُ تَنْفُذ All things are in accordance with His determination and will. And His will is fulfilled. So, everything that's happening in the universe, not just the creation of things, but even the movement of things. The leaf that drops from a tree. وَمَا تَسْكُتُ مِنْ وَرَقَةٍ إِلَّا يَعْلَمُ Ibn Kathir, I believe it's Ibn Kathir, relates a story, some of you may have heard this before. Of an individual who was sitting down in some woods in a forest area and he sees a scorpion rushing somewhere. It was a very amusing scene and he decided to follow it. So he sees this scorpion just running a marathon or something like that. He decides to follow it and he sees that it's coming to the bank of a stream and if it falls in there, you know, it's going to perish. So he's watching it and it's just going and it jumps into the water. Just at that moment, a leaf falls from a tree on the bank and just kind of floats down and lands right in the place where the scorpion lands on it. It was just such a coordinated action. It was just amazing. And it floats to the other side. The scorpion gets up and just continues running. That was a very strange occurrence. And then he sees that a particular individual is lying below a tree sleeping. And he thinks that this snake is going to attack it. But he sees that a snake is slightly headed to the other side. And that's when he sees that the snake goes up the tree rather than go and attack the person up the tree and that's when he notices that there's a snake who's about to attack the man who's lying down underneath the scorpion attacks the snake snake falls down on the other side and the man wakes up and is saved I mean that's the coordination in nature of the leaf and the scorpion 
And that's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who knows why that leaf is falling and what benefit it's going to provide. He knows when the rain will fall and what will be produced from it and how much benefit will be provided from it. This is the point to discuss something. A knife cuts, fire burns. How do we deal with burning and the fire? What's the relationship between the two? Even within the Christians, they've got these differences of opinion about how these things actually work. There's one group, the philosophers, a lot of them, they actually believe that Allah gave the ability to the knife to cut. That's the inherent quality of a knife, that that's what it's going to do when you use it in the correct way. The fire to burn. So, although initially, a lot of Christians believe this as well, and this is the Mu'tazili belief. Initially, it's Allah who provided that capability in the knife to cut, and in the fire to burn. Then he let it free. So now every time a knife is used, it cuts with its own God-given power. Now obviously there's some people who don't believe that God gave that and the knife, that's just its function, and the fire, that's its function. It wasn't God-given, it's just that's the way it evolved or whatever it is, right? This first opinion that I mentioned, they're a bit better off than that because at least they say Allah provided that in the first place. But that's not the opinion of the Ahl-Sunnah al-Jama'ah. There's nothing that's out of Allah's control. This would be out of Allah's control. The knife is continuing to now cut, the fire is burning and Allah has no control over it. There's some Christians who believe that, yeah, it has its own free reign now, the fire will always burn, but Allah can sometimes kind of step in and not let it do that. Alhamdulillah, the Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah, their belief is that Allah permits it to cut each time that it's used. Each time it gets permission from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to cut. Allah knows about it and he permits it to do that and the majority of the time it does that because that's just the nature of the world and that's the way Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala set up the system in the world and likewise with fire but when he wants he can have the most intense fire not burn and its intensity right its thermal intensity is completely diminished despite its whole facade of this massive fire like in the time of Ibrahim Ibrahim. and likewise Ibrahim's knife try as he might with all the force that he wants turning his son the other way around it just wouldn't cut because Allah, the central command, had prohibited it from cutting at that point in time. So at each time it's given permission to cut. Each time. That's the Allah who we want to believe in. That's the Allah who we worship. You know, that's our Allah. That's our concept of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So وَكُلُّ شَيْءٍ يَجْرِي فِي الْكَوْلِ إِنَّمَا هُوَ بِقُدْرَتِهِ وَمَشِيئَتِهِ Not just by some power he gave to it before, but with his mashia, with his will each time. خَالِقُ كُلِّ شَيْءٍ Allah says. He is the creator of everything. وَخَلَقَ كُلَّ شَيْءٍ فَقَدَّرَهُ تَقْدِيرًا He created everything. And He also allotted for it. Different allotments. وَاللَّهُ خَلَقَكُمْ وَمَا تَعْمَلُونَ Allah created you and what you do. Allah created you and your actions. Inshallah when we come to the discussion of taqdeer and destiny, we'll deal with these aspects a bit more in detail. I don't want to spoil that discussion right now. وَمَشِيئَتُهُ التَّنْفُرُ Which basically means that whatever he wills, it comes into being. Meaning, his will is fulfilled. Anything he wills, it comes into being. He just has to will it. We will a lot of things. You know, there's one individual, he comes up to a sheikh and he said, You know what, I've got a dilemma. I've made half the preparation for my marriage. He goes, why don't you get married? He goes, no, I've made half the preparation. I've done everything on my, on my side. Now she just has to say yes. Right? He's got this will, he's, he's got this irada, this mashia, but nothing's happening. Because the other side has to agree. With Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, anything he wills comes into being. Point 25. إِلَّا مَا شَاءَ لَهُمْ فَمَا شَاءَ لَهُمْ كَانْ وَمَا لَمْ يَكُنْ 
His servants are without volition except what he wills for them. Which means that his servants don't have a will except what Allah wills for them. Thus, what he wills for them will be and what he does not will for them will not be. This actually makes it sound very fatalistic. Allah wants something, then you can have it. And if he doesn't, well, it's not going to happen. That's our belief. This actually relates to the issue of Qadr and destiny that's coming up after point 52, the divine decree, the pen and the tablet. But basically, we're supposed to have some free will because we're not fatalists, you know, we're not Jabariya. But this is saying that you don't have any volition. There's a number of ways of understanding this, but inshallah, when we get to this, the discussion on divine decree tomorrow, inshallah, I'll explain this a bit further, but for now, understand this that there is no doubt, there is no doubt that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given the human being some amount of free will. How do we know that? Well, we know that by the fact that if I want to move my hand voluntarily, I see that alhamdulillah I can. There's some people who have Parkinson's disease or other diseases where they have an involuntary shake of their hand and they can't help it. There's a marked difference. There's a perceivable, a comprehensible difference between voluntarily shaking your hands and an involuntary shake of the hands. Which basically means that there's some amount of will. There is a, a small window of personal will that we have. And that's why we're accountable, because if we didn't, we wouldn't be accountable. But at the same time, who gave us this will? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He gave it to us. Every time we try to do something with our free will, every time I try to even move my hand, He's creating the ability at that time. This ties in with the discussion I had about the knife and the fire, about it burning and so on. It's not that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created this will in us and then He let it go. This is what the Mu'tazili believe. The Mu'tazila are actually Qadariya as well. Just to remind us, the Mu'tazila, the Mu'tazilites, rationalists, they're actually Qadariya as well. Because they believe that they're libertarians, in a sense. They believe that the bad acts of a servant are not created by Allah, but the human being creates them. Allah doesn't create bad actions at all. We're going to talk about that a bit more in the next session. We look at point 106 and beyond, divine enablement, accountability, good and evil. That's where that will come. But just to briefly summarize it here so that we're not left lagging here, is that we do see that we have free will and that is enough for us to be accountable. We perceive this free will. We know we can do good if we want to. We don't always feel like it, but we have to try our best. And when you ask Allah, Allah makes it easy. On the other hand though, Allah is the creator of everything and He's behind everything. So really, if you look at it from our perspective, we do have some amount of free will. But if you look at it from Allah's perspective, we are actually completely under His control. And we can't do anything about that. And we're pleased to be that way anyway. So we look at it from Allah's perspective, He's in control of every single thing. When we look at it from our perspective, we can't say that we're forced to do this, that and the other because we do perceive some amount of free will though it's Allah behind that as well. So when I want to turn this page, Allah has given me the ability to will but it's Allah who actually creates in me the physical ability and energy to actually do that. Each time. Each time. And sometimes when Allah saves a person, 
they've done some good deeds or whatever, and they've made a decision to go and do something wrong, their friend is going to pick them up and they're going to go to the pub or the club, or they're going to go out with so-and-so, you're already all dressed up, called your friend, he's coming, his car breaks down. You're like, missed it. And then, two years afterwards, you're like, you know what, Alhamdulillah, that's what happened that day. Because had I done what we were hoping to do on that day, I would have messed my life up. It's Allah who was bountiful and gave us the tawfiq at that time. That despite what we wanted to do, He saved us. See, Allah doesn't mislead anybody. He doesn't have to. The attraction in the world is such that if Allah just leaves us alone for a while and doesn't have a protective cover over us, then people will stray because of the attraction. So when you say yudillu man yasha, I like to translate it as he allows to deviate who he wishes. As opposed to he causes them to deviate. Because then you get this question of accountability. If he's causing you to deviate, then how, how should you be accountable? He doesn't have to push you to do that. He just has to remove his protective covering, his guidance. And the prophets have the best of this guidance, which is called isma or infallibility. Right? And the awliya has, have the second best, which is you know, a, a special protection. The more closer we are to Allah, the more protection we have. So anyway, from our perspective, we definitely have some free will. But when you look at it from Allah's perspective, everything is in His control. And I think beyond that, to try to understand the intricacies, it gets really complicated. But again, we'll deal with that in a lot more detail in the next section, inshallah. يَهْدِي مَنْ فَضْلًا وَيُضِلُّ مَنْ وَيَبْتَلِي عَدْلًا This is point 26. Just one point before we move on to that. The Mu'tazila, they say that the Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not create the evil actions of the human being. The human does it himself. But of course the human is responsible for them because Allah gave them the ability to use the energy in the body to do good or bad. Just like you're given a nice BMW and you said, okay, go, go, you know, use this for the good. So you can use it to take people to the masjid, to pick somebody up or whatever, uh, take your mom shopping. But on the other hand, you can also do something else with it. The ability is there. You're misusing it Or you're abusing it Or you're using it properly And you're accountable for that Nobody's going to blame the car If you cr- crash into something And say okay let's get BMW You know people do try to sue the companies You know for some malfunction or whatever And say like you know It went beyond this or whatever There's a malfunction Hardly works I mean it's the individual Who's going to be accountable So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Wants the good from his servants And prohibits the evil But if they want to do it He allows them to do it Because this that window of free will That he's given them so when they want to use that ability, you could say, well, why doesn't Allah stop the person? Well, if that's what the person wants to do, He allows them to realize that free will that the person has. But otherwise, You can only will and want that which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants. So Mu'tazila, they actually say that those things are independently done. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't do it. He's just given them this ability and then they misuse it. We say, no, Allah is the one who gives the ability even for evil actions. But it's bad other for us to say that Allah is the creator of bad actions, though He is. And we have to believe that as well. Because Allah is the creator of everything. So we can't go around saying Allah creates dirt and Allah is this, that and the other, except for educational purposes. right? Because that's bad adab, it's bad character, it's bad morals with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and etiquette. But at the same time, that's our belief. And there's a wisdom. So when the tsunami takes place and it shakes the leader of the church, 
you know, in terms of their concept, which is a very limited and problematic concept of Allah being this all-merciful one and not the one who avenges or who punishes and so on. Our concept of Allah is very rich that this supreme creator can do everything and whatever he wishes. Okay, so we don't have this problem. There's a wise purpose for everything that happens in the world. Sometimes we recognize and sometimes we don't. So the next point is, um, he guides, protects and preserves whomever he wills by grace. And he misguides, forsakes and afflicts whomever he wills by justice. We mentioned this before. But this is again to reiterate. Allah guides who he wills and he protects and preserves. Ya'sim from Isma, he protects. Wa'yu'afi, fadlam. Wa'yu'afi means he actually preserves. I mean, he gives him afia, well-being. Whoever he wills, fadlam. That's a grace. That's a bonus. That's up to him. It's not necessary for him to do that. If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants, He can do whatever He wills. Because it's His dominion that He is exercising in. And He can do it as He wishes. There's nobody to ask Him, why are you doing that? Because we are all owned and we're all the dominion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You know, it's only when the human gets this kind of independence and this feeling that, you know, there's something. That's when you start questioning Allah. Why did Allah do this to my son? Why did Allah do this to my people or whatever? It's Allah's. He does what He wishes. Sometimes we don't understand the grand plan of things and wisdom. But even when he protects somebody and he saves somebody, he does that out of his grace and benevolence. It's not necessary for him to do that. Make that clear. See, the Mu'tazilites, they believe that he has to do that. We believe God is benevolent, that's why he does that. And then he lets astray, uh, he says, and he misguides. I mean, I would just say he uh, lets to stray. And forsakes, yakhdul, forsake. Yakhdul means to stop having mercy on somebody, to stop protecting somebody. You forsake them, you let them do what they want. In the sense of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you take them out of your protection, your tawfiq. And afflicts whom he wills, yabtadi, afflicts, tests, puts into trial, whoever he wills by justice. He does that out of his justice, meaning he's allowed to do that. It's just for him to do that. Biggest example of Allah, guys, who he wishes is the uncle of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Inna la tahdi man ahbabt. You can't guide whom you will. Wallahu yahdi man yasha. And Allah guides who He wills. Wa amma thamudu fahadaynahum. Guidance has two meanings. One means to show somebody the way and let them adopt it or not adopt it. The other one is to actually take them through and make them do it. So we gave guidance to the thamud, but they chose blindness over it. They decided not to adopt it. See this word Ya'sim comes from the word Isma. That's been defined as Malakatun Tahmilu Sahibaha ala ijtinabil ma'asi ma'attamakuni minha. It's a special faculty or a special ability that Allah provides which encourages the person to avoid sins despite having the ability to do so. So it's not like he's stripped of that ability. But it's just this ability to overcome the urge to sin. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us protection from sins. You see, people, when it relates to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they're in one of two situations. Either they're under the mercy of Allah, in which all the good things are happening to them. Or they are under the wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala 
it can't be beyond that. Which basically means that even if we think it's the worst thing that's happening in our life, but there's a wise purpose behind it, which sometimes we realize later on. It might be to take us away from our sins, it might be to raise our status, it may be to protect us from some other greater impending danger or impending calamity. And people shift between the two sometimes. Sometimes a person is under the circle of Rahmah or the shower of Rahmah. Sometimes they are tested. There's different positions. Exactly what I mean. All of them vacillate in his providence between his grace and his justice. Sometimes they're in this, sometimes they're in that. Now before going on to the topic of the Prophet Imam Tahawi decides to remind us again about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his transcendent nature. So he goes back to that and he says, he transcends having any opposites or peers. What that means is that he is beyond, he is above having any opposites or peers. So Allah is way above pure and transcendent, above having an opposite. An opposite means somebody like an equal. Somebody that opposes him, competes with him. لا راد لقضائه ولا معقب لحكمه ولا غالب لأمره None can thwart his decree. And none can repel his decree. When he decrees something, none can repel that. Or when he has decreed something, nobody can repel it. Overrule his judgment. Or override his command. These things are absolute. So if something has been decreed, which means that if Allah has known something and has written it to be in a particular way, then that's the way it's going to happen. Try as you might. As the hadith of the Prophet said that if the entire world, all the jinn, humans, everybody try to benefit in a way that Allah has not written for you, they would not be able to do so, even if they gather and try to do it accumulatively. And likewise, the opposite of that. And finally, آمَنَّا بِذَلِكَ كُلِّهِ وَأَيْقَنَّا أَنَّ كُلَّ مِنْ عِنْدِهِ We believe in all of that and are certain that all of it is from Him. So we believe in that, which means we believe in the decree. We believe in everything that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has decreed, all of it. Whether it's good or bad, whether it's bitter or sweet, all of that we believe in that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is in control, He knows and He's predestined it. And there's a wisdom behind it. وَإِقَنَّا And we are convinced that all of this is happening from the will and the irada of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I guess that's a good place to end the day. Just to kind of overview tomorrow before we take those of the questions. The next section is obviously about the Prophet ﷺ, that's the Nubuwad section, they're quite simple. Then it goes on to the next section from 35, the Qur'an, the speech of Allah, that comes back to the Ilahiyat. Then Allah's transcendence, the beatific vision, anthropomorphism, that's a bit of a heavy topic, but I think we've kind of alluded to many issues, so inshallah that will be simplified tomorrow. And then the night journey and ascension, Isra and Mi'raj, and the pool, the intercession, the covenant, these are from the Mughayyabad, these are very simple. The divine decree, some parts I've alluded to again, but inshallah it shouldn't be too difficult. And then he just clarifies many issues that relate to that. I think that's where we should end tomorrow inshallah. And if we can, we might do a few more sections. Let's take a few questions. Why do some people criticize Ash'ari and Maturi ideologies? Well, I guess the only reason they criticize that is because either they're ignorant about it, I think that would be one of the primary reasons. When they're ignorant about something, they'll criticize it. A lot of people, they've just been told by others 
that Ash'ari Maturi, they're like this and that, so they just follow that, they have no idea. A lot of the time, it's actually because they have sectarian ideas. So obviously, they're going to complain about the mainstream and the orthodoxy. Should we only talk about Allah from what He has said about Himself and not make up our own examples? Absolutely, and we should restrict ourselves to describing Allah in the way that He's described Himself. But I think in order to understand some things, especially the more complex things, it's okay to give examples that the scholars have used. Can you be Athari and not Maturidi and Ash'ari? What is the difference? See, Athari is a fairly new term. It depends on what you mean by Athari. If you mean by Athari is the opinion of the Salaf, which basically means that any verse that comes about, we leave it to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, any ambiguity, we leave it to Allah, then that's the opinion of the Salaf. Then you don't have to call yourself Athari or whatever, it doesn't really matter. If you mean by Athari that it's just a more beautiful name for Salafi, then that's a whole different issue. A lot of this will be inshallah clarified tomorrow, okay, in the section when we talk about it. And again, as I mentioned, you don't have to be Ash'ari or Maturidi as long as you don't have a deviant belief. And that's what's important, as long as you have the core fundamental beliefs. What is the difference between negating attributes and abstract attributes? The abstract attributes is just another name for the Sifat Thubutiya, the affirmative attributes. Because, you know, the Sifat, the quality. We say ilm, it's an abstract. You know, like for example, I say, show me hearing. Show me seeing. It's an abstract attribute because it's not something that's a substance which you can put in a plate and show somebody. That's why it's called abstract attributes. It's called sifat ma'ani. They're ma'na. It's a ma'na. It's an abstract attribute. The seven active attributes, can you say them again? They're creating, sustaining, bringing into being, originating, making, and others. For example, giving life, causing death, causing growth, developing, shaping, creating. Is the Qur'an pre-eternal as Allah is pre-eternal? Yes, it is. The Qur'an is pre-eternal, but again, I will describe this in detail. So wait for this tomorrow, but yes, it is eternal. And can you explain why the Qur'an is not created? Well, because it's the speech of Allah and He's always possessed it. It's an attribute that's eternal. It's with Allah. It can't be created. Though, the copy of the Qur'an we have in front of us is created. Okay, I think that's where the confusion lies. The copy of the Qur'an we have in our hands, that's a created copy. When we speak it, it's a created speech. But the eternal speech of Allah, which this speech reflects, that's eternal. That's not created. That's always been there. Is it true that Imam Abu Hanifa said, if you do not know where Allah is, you are a disbeliever? I haven't heard that. In fact, the statements he makes in Al-Fiqhul Akbar are very different to that. Point 21. He determined the spans of their lives. Does this include people who commit suicide? Why is suicide haram if it was predetermined? It's very simple. One is the action of Allah and His decree and the other one is the action of the human being. I mean, it's the same. This question doesn't have to relate to suicide. It could relate to the sins that we do. Allah's decreed, Allah's given us the ability and He knows what we're going to do. He's decreed everything that we're going to do. So, why should we be accountable for the sins according to that same logic? Reason is, is because there is an action of the human being by merit of the small power and ability that Allah has given us, but for which we are accountable. So a person who is committing suicide is doing something to himself voluntarily, though Allah has written for him to die at that time as well. So that happens at the same time.
It's like the person came to Umar radiallahu an who had drunk some intoxicants and he said, well, you know, this was done by the qadr of Allah. So Umar radiallahu said, that's fine. And he beat him and he said, this is also by the qadr of Allah. I mean, this is the kind of argument that's being made here. Aside from showing good akhlaq, how should we respond to family members who have deviant aqidah and thick understanding, who always try to give their da'wah to you and your family? I think really if it ends up in debate, especially with family members, it just causes problems. I think that here is kindness and make dua for them. Sometimes it may take years for anything to change and sometimes things may never change. It may be a challenge for life. It may be just a circle of testing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to put us through. His wisdom for the way it is. The main thing is that good character always helps and it always wins through. So we pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that's what happens. Related to point 26, afflicts whomever he wills by his justice. How do we reconcile verses 78-79 of Surah An-Nisa where in the one verse it says all things are from Allah and in the next verse it said whatever of good reaches you is from Allah and whatever of evil befalls you is from yourself. That's a very interesting point and that's very clearly explained by the ulama that according to the adab we don't say that evil is from Allah. We blame ourselves for the evil that comes to us. But at the same time, Allah clarifies in the beginning that all things are from Allah. So one is talking about the reality of the matter and the other one is talking about the etiquette of how to deal with it. Uh, the Prophet ﷺ said, Al-khayru kulluhu minka wa sharru laysa ilayka aw kama which means that all good is from you but the sharr, the evil, is not imputed on you. Which means we don't project that on Allah, though He is the creator of everything. Okay? And it's just the adab that Allah is showing in the Quran. In one place He's telling us the reality that everything is from Allah. In the other verses He's showing us the adab that you don't speak of it in this way. You mentioned that to give Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala jism is haram sinjimkari, separated in His composed structures. But what about in the Quran where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, wajhun and yadun about Himself, these can be separated. And this can be separated. See, the word jism is not used, so we can't use it. The word yad and wajhun is used. We can use it, but then it's necessary to repel from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala any meaning that would imply that he is similar to something. Because he also says, Laysa kamithlihi shay. Jism is out of the question because he doesn't say that at all. So we can't even use that. These words we can, but we have to leave the meanings of that to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala according to the Salaf's opinion. Okay? According to the Khalaf, the later ulama, they said you can give it an appropriate speculative ta'wil. But at the same time they said it's safer. We will discuss that in more detail afterwards. But jism is out of the question. Because that's never been said. And that's really taking from this. See, one thing you have to remember is that, you know, sometimes adults speak to children in this babyish terms. Just so that they can kind of relate to them a bit more. They have a different word for water, for rice, for bread, right? I don't know if you guys know all that stuff. So, a person observing this communication between the parent and the child, or the adult and the child, starts to think that this adult is a child, because he speaks that way. Because he or she is speaking in that particular way, oh, you're a child. Aren't we going to consider this a bit silly and a bit short-sighted? I think a similar thing is happening with this. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is so great and so transcendent 
and so mighty that it's impossible for us to understand him. In the Quran and through his messenger, he's used certain terms that are common to us just so that he can give us a small understanding of him. So, the human being does is that he starts thinking that Allah is like that. See what I'm saying? So he's used certain words which we can comprehend and which we can relate to. So we start saying Allah is like that. La hawla wa la Whereas he makes it clear. Laysa kamithlihi shay. So yes, he says yadun and wajhun. But at the same time, we have to say he has a yad, he has a wajh, but it's unlike anything else and we leave it to Allah. If you're going to say you have to believe it's part of a body, because a yad is a part of a body, but we're not going to describe it, that's blasphemy. Even the current day Salafis don't do that. Meaning the scholars don't do that. I don't know if the common people do that, but the scholars don't do that. Even in Abil Iz and a lot of the Saudi commentaries in Aqidah Tahawiyah, they say he has a yadun, we have to take this literally, but it's not a limb. Right? It's not a limb. They make that very clear. The problem is that the way it's being said does insinuate that. Though they make it clear and it's a dangerous way to say it. That's the problem. But nobody has said that it's a part of a body. And if you're saying that, that's the seem. Because when Allah said yadun, He didn't say yadun, i.e. as a part of the body. And you have to believe that because it said laysa kamithli shay on the other hand. So that's actually mujassima, anthropomorphic to say that it's a part of the body and that Allah says He has it. And Allah knows this.